continuing in our study this morning on the letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul's letter of Ephesians. And we've been here for a while. We took a break for Advent and jumped back in. And last week we got to wrap up chapter 3, which was really the first half of the letter. And so this week, as we continue, we're going to be jumping into chapter 4 and transitioning into the second half of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And it's really a letter that's full of rich theology and instructions for how we are to live as we seek after the Lord. Before we jump in, though, let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity each and every week to open it together, Lord, to learn from it. Lord, as we hear your word today, we pray that you would use it to guide and instruct us. Lord, that you would give us open ears and soft hearts to hear what you have to declare today. And Lord, may nothing that I say get in the way of your work here today, but may you stir in our hearts. May you move us closer and closer to your image. And pray us in Jesus' name, amen. Well, within the church, one of the elements that we've talked about before that's important as a church body is this idea of unity. There's an importance as Christians in our pursuit of unity. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, says this about unity. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn away from God and strive for closer fellowship. I love that description and picture of unity, that tuned to something else, they are unified But if they were to be looking to one another, trying to ensure that they were aware of their unity, they would not be as unified as they would be when they're looking away to Christ. It made me think about how we as a church can strive to be unified. What would it look like to share our gifts with one another well? What would it look like to live seeking to be generous with one another and to pursue unity? Would we see a church that looks more like the church in Acts 2? where they're sharing their gifts together for the good of the body, would we be more likely to help one another out of our love for Christ? Or would we be more willing to put aside our preferences for the greater good of the body of Christ if we truly pursue after unity? These are important questions for us to ask ourselves as we determine how we follow Christ as a body of believers, as individuals who are very different, and yet we come together in our pursuit of Christ. And unity is something that's always been important in the church of God. In fact, it's been foundational to the movement going back to the beginning. On the Church of God's website, it describes unity as being one of the key beliefs of the movement. It says, quote, we are a people uniquely called by God to be a catalyst for Christian unity. Believing that the division of the body of Christ is hell's greatest weapon to thwart heaven's end in this world, We are convinced that the splintering of the body is not the Lord's work, but the enemy's. We believe that hell trembles at the prospect of a people united, redeemed by the blood and possessed by the Spirit. What a picture for the church. And what a picture as well of what comes against us in our pursuit of unity. 
So as we move into the second half of Ephesians today, we're going to see Paul transition from a focus on theology to a practical application for those followers of Christ. And it begins with a call for the church to seek unity together. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 4 this morning and learn how we too can practically apply Paul's message to the Ephesians as we seek to live in unity with one another. So if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, it's going to be on the screen as well, or you can follow along in the Pew Bible or on your phone. Kyle Snodgrass, and yes, that is his name, he wrote in his commentary on the book to Ephesians, no passage is more descriptive of the church in action than Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And that's the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning to see what God wants to teach us. So starting in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul begins chapter 4 with this therefore, which we've talked about before, shows us that it's reflecting what's come previous to this. So Paul starts chapter 4 by hinging it upon everything that came prior, the theology that he was laying in chapters 1 through 3. The first half of this letter really provides that doctrinal foundation And then the second half is a practical application, an exhortation for the church in Ephesus as to how they are to live out the doctrine that they have received from Paul. But notice right away the position that Paul places himself in. Paul continues with this theme of humility that we saw at the end of chapter 3, saying he is a prisoner for the Lord. Now we know when Paul wrote this, he was a prisoner of Rome, and yet Paul wants to distinguish that's not Rome who he is a prisoner to, but it's a prisoner to the Lord. That is who he serves. And so he's showing his humility here as he urges the church in Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. You see, if one is to say that they follow Jesus, if we are to say that we are believers in Jesus Christ and Christians, then that should impact our walk and our actions. It should lead us to live a certain lifestyle, to lead our life in a manner that is in line with Scripture and in line with how Christ calls us to live. Believers have an obligation to live out their faith in agreement with the calling that they've received. And that's the idea that Paul is getting at here. That after we experience a new life in Christ, after we become God's people, that we then are to seek to follow His commands faithfully with our lives. Now, this means that we don't say we're Christians and then continue to walk the way of the world and put aside the instructions of Scripture. It means we don't seek to live contrary to the Word of God, but we seek to adhere to it in our daily lives, to make it the rule of our lives. Now, will we make mistakes? Will we fall short? Definitely. We'll have times where we stumble, where we don't live up to the standard that's set in Scripture, but that should be what we are striving to. Yet far too often in this day and age, Christianity has become soft in our country. People have given allowances to pick and choose which parts of the Bible that they want to follow. People have said some are outdated or no longer relevant, and some don't really reflect the culture we live in, so we can just kind of ignore those and choose the aspects we want to follow. 
It's great to love our neighbors, but we want to ignore the sin that we deal with in our lives and not call it sin. And that's not what Scripture tells us when we look at what it looks like to follow after Christ with our lives, to follow after His commands throughout Scripture, and to adhere to Paul's exhortation for believers. Paul is very intentional here in the text, in the language he uses, to make the point that this calling that we have, the calling that you and I have as followers of Christ, that it is from God, that is a calling from God to where we are to live. And this calling, Paul sets it in the divine passive, showing us that it's God who calls us. It isn't because of our good, it's not because we've worked hard enough, but it's because of who God is and what he does in our lives, that he calls us. And Paul expands in verses 2 and 3 at the beginning of this chapter as to what this means for our lives, the manner that we are to walk in, to be worthy of this calling. And he starts it by providing three virtues that he lays out, humility, gentleness, and patience. So Paul tells us part of following the calling that God has called us to is to live our lives with these virtues, humility, gentleness, and patience. And Paul is showing the Ephesians what humility looks like through his writings and through his life as he leads in this manner, as he doesn't always pursue his agenda or his um, boasting, but he pursues after the Lord. The idea of gentleness we see throughout his various writings, this aspect of restoring someone after they've sinned, using gentleness when we do that, it's how we treat one another, and having patience. We see patience all throughout Scripture, reference to the character of the Lord. In fact, there's many Scriptures that talk about the kindness and patience of the Lord that's meant to lead us to repentance. I am so thankful that the Lord is patient with me, that He gives me those opportunities that lead me to repentance so I can experience His grace. These three virtues that Paul starts with are foundational aspects of our Christian character as we seek to follow in the footsteps of Christ. And we saw them modeled through the life of Christ as he walked the earth. We saw him live with humility and gentleness and patience towards those that he ministered to. After these virtues that Paul lists, he shows us that we are to also bear with one another in love. This means that we are gentle and patient and have humility toward others out of a love for one another. Rather than operate out of our own desires or our own preferences, that we are to operate out of a love for one another within the body of Christ. And so that is what Paul is charging the Ephesians and in turn us today to live in this manner, that we would live with a love for one another. And we know that that love stems from the love of Christ at work in our lives. But why do we seek to live in this manner that Paul suggests? Well, it's to seek unity with one another, to maintain peace with one another. He concludes verse 3 saying, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, we want to, as followers of Christ, be unified in our pursuit of Christ. We don't always have to be unified in everything we do. We don't all have to have the same calling or the same desires, but our pursuit of Christ should bring us together and unify us as we focus our eyes upon Christ. And this means that even when we disagree about things, even when we have preferences that are different within the church, that we can pursue unity and peace because of Jesus Christ, because of the work that he is doing in our hearts 
and in our lives, drawing us together in a pursuit of Him. Well, Paul has called the believers to unity, and now he provides the basis for what makes this call important for the church. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see, Paul roots this call for unity that he gives us today in the fact that there is one body and one spirit. In this section here of Scripture, Paul repeats this sense of being one seven times, which we know that the biblical number seven has a sense of completeness. And so Paul is just driving home this point that there is a oneness within our faith and within the body of Christ. Not simply a oneness that you're called to in one aspect, but it runs throughout all aspects of the Christian faith. It is foundational as we pursue after one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Paul drives home the fact that believers, as a result of their salvation, are called to this unity and called to maintain this unity amongst one another. I love how Daryl Bach, a professor at Dallas Seminary, describes the impact that this unity has uh, and that ensures that the church becomes, as he says, that the church, when it pursues unity, will become a place of peace and reconciliation, a witness to God's knitting people together through Christ. This oneness that happens when we pursue after Christ, the knitting together of people who are different, who have different opinions, who come from different backgrounds, who have different experiences and different stories of faith. And yet when we pursue after Christ, when we are unified together, there is a knitting together, a oneness that reflects upon our Lord and Savior, that shows a unity to the world around us and really provides a beautiful picture of the foundation of our faith. I mean, just think about the Trinity and the Holy Spirit. There's a oneness there where there's three. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Three in one, one in three. What a picture of oneness that is foundational to our faith and to our beliefs. And so we too, as we come together, pursue after that oneness, that unity of the Spirit that Paul describes here. When Paul calls us to unity, and supports it by showing us the oneness of our faith. But in verse 7, he moves towards how this comes to fruition within the body of Christ because of God's grace. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And see what Paul's doing here is he wants to root this idea of being unified and this idea of oneness that he's been describing in the gift of Christ's grace to each of us. And Christ gives us grace in multiple different ways. We have the salvation grace that we receive, but uh, this grace that's talking about here is not necessarily a saving or sanctifying grace, but a ministry grace that Paul is going to be getting after. To refer to the gifts that are given to believers for a corporate service and edification. You see, we each have been gifted by Jesus Christ. Gifted in order to serve the church in one way or another. 
We are equipped to serve others. No one is meant to be an island as a church, but we need the giftedness that others possess. Christ determines our roles, and as we serve Him, we honor Him as we come together as a church. In verse 8 here, it, it says that when Christ ascended on high, He gave these gifts to men. The gift of His Spirit and the other spiritual gifts that we are given for our lives and for the ministry that happens within the body of Christ come from Jesus Christ. The ESV expository commentary in talking about this says that Paul now cites the Old Testament, Psalm 68, 18, to provide the support or the grounds for the claim that he made in verse 7. And by using the present tense, therefore it says, Paul is indicating that the scriptures, although spoken or written in the past, still speak today and are therefore relevant and binding on believers. I love that aspect that even though it's written in the past, it's still relevant and binding upon believers. That Paul knows that even though the Psalms were written many, many years before him, that the truth that was spoken about who God is and about how God builds up the body, that those are true today as well. Well, in verse 9 there, we see this aspect of Christ descending, which has led to a lot of controversy among scholars, a lot of questions of what does this really mean when it says that Christ descended? And there's a lot of debate about what it could mean. As I read multiple scholars who are way smarter than I am, there are really four aspects that come up in terms of what this could mean. The first would be that it's referring to Christ descending into hell after he died. The second is the idea that Christ came down to earth, the incarnation, which we just spent Advent talking about, right? Christ incarnate when he comes to earth and takes on human form. The third is Christ coming at Pentecost when he came upon the believers in God the Spirit and came into their lives with the Holy Spirit. Or the fourth was his death. And as I read through multiple commentaries on this, trying to figure out what's going on here and what does Paul mean here, most of them would argue that the best explanation of what Paul is talking about here is not Christ's descent into hell, but the incarnation that occurred when Jesus came down to earth as a baby. And that that's what he's talking about here. When he comes to earth is when he descended. You see, Jesus ascended to heaven, his ascension, but he descended to the lower regions of the earth when he came down as a baby, God incarnate. So Paul closes out this chapter, this section of chapter 4, moving us into the practical application of what all this means. What this grace and this desire for oneness and unity, how does that actually apply to the lives of the believers? How does it flush itself out in the daily lives? And so this is what he says in verse 11. He says, And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature or the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
Paul moves us to this practical element of what these gifts look like, what this oneness and unity in the body looks like. It reminds us of other aspects of Paul's writing where he talks about the spiritual gifts that are given to believers, the variety of gifts that are given. And yet, here in verse 11, he starts not with a list of spiritual gifts, but rather with the persons themselves who are given for the gift of unity and for the maturity of the church. And so right away, he has these five categories that he names, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Important roles that are pretty self-explanatory as to what these are. These roles that are given as a gift, but not as a gift to the individuals, but as a gift for the body of Christ. When you look at verse 12, we see the purpose that these are given. The purpose are not given to build up individuals, but for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You see, God gives us teachers and apostles and shepherds and evangelists and prophets Not so that individuals can be built up, but so the body of believers can be built up for the work of ministry that needs to occur. Because all who make up the body of Christ, all who follow Jesus are to partake in the work of the ministry, to partake in the work of the ministry of building up the church in our pursuit of Christ. We're not to be an island where one person is the only one who's ministering, but where everybody is to be ministering. We have different roles and different gifts, but they all make up the body of Christ and come together for the building up of his body. In verses 13 through 14, we see a call to continue in this work until we obtain a unity of the faith. Again, Paul's driving back to that idea that we would be unified, that as we work together, as we strive together, bring our different gifts together that that would unify us as a church body and that we would be mature in our knowledge of God and the fullness of Christ. This is a lifelong pursuit. It's not something that, you know, we spend a couple years doing and then great, check that box, we're done with that. But we will continue this side of heaven, continually pursuing after a unity of faith, continuing to seek to grow in our maturity of our understanding of who God is and to be fully possessed by Jesus Christ. You see, this, this section that Paul's giving us has a goal. The goal is that we would grow in these ways to be firm in our understanding of who God is. Paul wants the Ephesians and wants us who are reading it today to have a solid foundation, a theological foundation that can help us stand against anything that comes our way. And Paul is clear to name false doctrine, deceitful schemes, that those will come. I'm sure you can think of examples in your life of those things, of false doctrine that sought to come into the church, of schemes that have sought to come into the church to persuade us away from God, to move us away from a unity of believers. And yet Paul wants us to know that this foundation of theology is so key Because when we have that, we'll be able to weather those things that come our way. And so we must take this to heart when Paul calls us to be able to not be tossed to and fro, but to be able to grow in our knowledge of who God is, to grow in our fullness of Christ within us. In verses 15 and 16, Paul closes out these verses showing us the hope that rather than being tossed to and fro by the waves and by false doctrine, we would base our speech upon love and grow in Christ. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, 
we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, Christ is the glue for the church. He is who binds us together. When we seek at it alone, we miss out on that aspect that God has a body of believers to come around one another. And when we pursue Christ who is the glue who binds us together, then we are equipped to be able to work properly, to be able to function in a way that we see the body grow and build itself up in love in our pursuit of Christ. And we will gain maturity and knowledge of who God is as we work together as a church. This picture of unity that Paul desires for the Ephesians is one that we too should desire in our own lives. That we would look to our right and to our left and we would seek to grow with one another, to put aside personal preferences and desires and pursue after Christ as one body, with Christ being the one who binds us together always. Paul has shown us a lot this morning. He's grounded our pursuit of unity as a body of believers in the love of who Christ is and the gifts that he has given us to serve the body of believers. So how can we move forward this morning as followers of Christ? I want to suggest three ways that this applies to our daily lives as we pursue after Christ. The first is that we would seek to be unified. This is a need that's presented by Paul, that Christians would desire a unity. And it's always been a challenge for the church. I read through church history and through the examples in church history, and there's always an aspect of a challenge of unity amongst the church. And that's why it's so important. Because there will always be differences. There will always be aspects that can divide us. And yet we want to continue to pursue after a unity together. When we have a unity as believers, the impact of our witness grows to the world around us. So how do we pursue being unified? Well, there are virtues that Paul has shown us that we need to embody in our lives as we seek to be unified together. Paul tells us that we need to have humility, which is needed because pride insists on getting its own way. We need to have a gentleness, which is needed because anger offends and harms others. And each of us have done that one time or another. We need to have patience, Because sometimes we can't control the actions of others, including God. And so we need to be patient with those around us. We need to have a tolerance at times because everyone has different weaknesses. And so we need to be patient and tolerant towards those around us. We need to have a love. Because love is the oil that lubricates all the other virtues that Paul lists. And we need to pursue after a peace together. Because unity cannot truly exist without God's people being united by the peace that surpasses all understanding. During World War II, Hitler commanded all religious groups to unite. And his purpose in this was simply so he could control them. But among the brethren assemblies, half complied and half refused this order. Those who went along with the order had a much easier road. And those who did not faced harsh persecution And in almost every family of those who resisted, someone died in a concentration camp. When the war was over, there were feelings of bitterness that ran deep between these groups, and there was much tension. But finally, they decided that the situation had to be healed, so leaders from each group met at a quiet retreat. 
And for several days, each person spent time in prayer examining his own heart in light of Christ's commands. And then they came together. And Francis Schaeffer, who told of the incident, asked a friend who was there, what did you do then? And his friend replied, we were just one. As they confessed their hostility and bitterness to God and they yielded to his control, the Holy Spirit created a sense of unity among them. Love filled their hearts and dissolved the hatred that was there. When love prevails among believers, especially in times of strong disagreement, it presents to the world an indisputable mark of a true follower of Christ. You see, within the church, we will inevitably hurt one another or wrong one another because our church is made up of broken, imperfect people who make mistakes. And yet I love the reality check that Tim Keller provides when he says the mistaken belief that a person must clean up his or her own life in order to merit God's presence is not Christianity. This means, though, that the church will be filled with immature and broken people who still have a long way to go emotionally, morally, and spiritually. But you see, when we fix our eyes upon Christ, rather than focusing on each other's brokenness, rather than focusing on our flaws and our mistakes, but when we both focus on Christ and pursue after unity with one another, it will bring us unified in Christ. The second aspect that I believe that Paul encourages us to today is to remind us that you are gifted, that God has given you gifts and you are to use your gifts. There are multiple places throughout Scripture where we see that God has gifted each one of us with a variety of gifts meant to complement one another, meant to be used together to serve and honor God and His church. It wouldn't make sense if we all had the same gifts. If our church was full of preachers but no one to lead worship, it would be really hard to sing praise songs to the Lord. Or if all of us were gifted in music, but there was no one who was gifted with the heart of service and serving behind the scenes, there would be a lot that wouldn't get done. You see, our gifts are varied in order that we can come together and use our gifts together as one body, the best that we can to glorify God as his church. I read a beautiful picture of this and how gifts can complement one another in Gary Inrig's book, Life in His Body. He shares that several years ago, two students graduated from the Chicago Kent College of Law. And the highest ranking student in the class was a blind man named Overton. And when he received his honor, he insisted that half the credit should go to his friend, Kasparazak. They had met one another in the school when the armless Mr. Kasparazak had guided the blind Mr. Overton down a flight of stairs. Their acquaintance ripened into a friendship and a beautiful example of interdependence. The blind man carried the books which the armless man read aloud in their common study, and thus the individual deficiency of each was compensated for by the other. After their graduation, they had planned to practice law together. You see, they used their various gifts, which helped compensate for where they fell short. And they used them to build up one another, and the church must do the same. We must come together with our various gifts because not one of us has all the gifts that are needed for the body of Christ. I can preach, but I can't sing. I am a horrible singer. If you asked me to lead worship, everyone would leave. God did not gift me in that way. And maybe you're different. Maybe you've been gifted in other ways. But to use your gifts for the glory of God through serving His church 
is a picture of what Paul calls the Ephesians to and what we are called to as followers of Christ. And in doing this, it brings me to my, our last application point, which is that we would seek maturity of the body as we build one another up. You see, being unified and gifted is one thing, but we want to take it a step further as we see Paul do as well and use these elements to move us towards a maturity in our faith as we build one another up in Christ. You see, as we seek maturity, it means we don't stop desiring to grow and to learn. We ask the Lord where it is that we need to grow, where are the areas that we need to learn more, and find classes you can take, develop those gifts in those areas. We live in a day and age where there is so much information at our fingertips that if there's areas you need to grow in or desire to grow in, there are classes and ways in which you can pursue after that maturity and that growth. I know for me in the last couple of years, I've been trying to grow in my prayer life. I've realized that's an area where I wanted to grow in my abilities to pray and my understanding of who God is in prayer and my abilities to listen to him. And so I've got more books, I've read more, I've listened to podcasts on prayer and I've spent more time in prayer, sitting before the Lord, trying to grow trying to exercise that muscle so that it becomes stronger. And it's an ongoing work. It's something that I'll continue to be working on in my life until the day I die. So seek to mature in who you are as a follower of Christ and the gifts that you've been given. And then use those gifts to build one another up. And we do this by serving one another, by praying for each other, and by loving each other well. When we pursue these things, we will see the body of Christ grow and mature. And in turn, we will not only glorify God, but we will be a light to the world around us as they see the way that we live in a way that the world doesn't recognize. So may we as a church be unified in our pursuit of Christ. May we put aside our personal preferences and agendas for the one agenda of Christ Jesus, our Lord, Savior. And may we strive together toward this goal. And in doing so, may we proclaim our unity to all those around us as we point people to Christ daily. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for Paul's words this morning, for the charge for each one of us. And Lord, as you are here in our midst, I pray that you would guide each one of us in the areas that we need to grow in. And what's getting in the way of us being unified in our pursuit of you. Lord, may we confess those areas. May we put them aside and die to those aspects of disunity so that we may be unified in you as one body pursuing after your will above all. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here today. I thank you that we get to journey together in our pursuit after you. May we build one another up. May we encourage one another. And may we love each other well. For your glory alone, we pray us in Jesus' holy name. Amen.